You're listening to What Makes Us Stronger, a series of stories about people's resilience at times of crisis. I'm Nisha Singh. Just a warning that today's episode contains some content you might find upsetting, including references to sexual violence. In recent months, there has been an alarming rise in the number of women and girls reporting sexual assaults in conflict zones, from Ukraine to Sudan. And one in three women will experience some form of physical or sexual violence in our lifetimes. It's a statistic so high that it can feel like an insurmountable problem. But women's rights experts have long argued that women should get the survivor-centered support they deserve, but there are also practical steps that can be taken to prevent and end the cycle of gender-based violence. In a moment, we'll be speaking to Dr. Leila Hussein, a renowned psychotherapist specializing in providing crucial support to survivors of sexual violence and a global campaigner for gender rights. But first, we'll hear from Rose. Rose is a mother of 13 children who lives with her family in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. She is 53 and has her own business selling cassava flour. Rose is also a survivor. During the Congolese Civil War, the use of rape as a weapon was a notorious part of the violence. In the past year, Fighting between armed groups in the east of the country has escalated again, in line with an alarming resurgence of violent assaults against women. Rose says her ordeal took place on an otherwise normal day. She was at home in South Kivu. She'd just put her kids to bed. She was talking to her husband and contemplating getting an early night. It was eight in the evening when some men entered the kitchen where I was with my husband. Our children were already asleep. The men were armed with sticks and knives. They asked us to open the door and suddenly they started beating me and my husband. Then they asked us for money. My husband told me to give it to them instead of them killing us. I went to my bedroom. I picked up the bag with the money, but the men wanted me to open it and give them the money myself. So I did. Then one man took me and he raped me while my husband was taken somewhere else. Other men entered the house of my sister-in-law next door. They brought her to the forest where they killed her. They released me in the morning because I had a baby who was still breastfeeding. Rose and her family reported the assault to local authorities, and she was able to get medical help. But tragically, that wasn't the end of her ordeal. The second time the men came was when we went to hide away from the house. I don't know by what magic they knew where we were hiding with my twin babies, but I could not escape. My husband and the other children fled. They took me and they raped me for the second time. 
I felt as if I no longer wanted to continue living and I even wanted to commit suicide to stop thinking about what happened to me. I no longer had a healthy body. It was painful and the taste showed that I had several sexually transmitted infections. It took several months of treatment before I was cured. After these attacks, Rose and her family decided it was no longer safe to stay in their village. And so they left home and moved to another town. What came next was an experience familiar to many survivors of sexual violence. Shame and rejection by the people closest to her. Many of us have seen our spouses distance themselves after these unfortunate events. My husband left me and went to live with his younger brother in North Kivu. He came back several years ago, and I learned that he listened to community members who told him that these outlaws must have given me incurable diseases. Even now, when he is angry with me, he insults me and does not stop returning the misfortune that struck me. Rose found some comfort in the women's group she joined. They helped her see that she had nothing to be ashamed of. Women for Women gave us a lot of advice. We learned that if women had suffered like a had or had been stigmatized by the community, then we will get strength together as a group. I cannot say that all these attacks are over because they are not. We still go to farm the land far from home and we go there with fear in our stomachs because of the risks. This is why we ask the authorities to get rid of the armed groups scoring the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo and to help us. Members of the armed group continue to sow terror and desolation, and it is time for it to end. With me now is Dr. Leila Hussein, who we are delighted to welcome as an international board director at Women for Women International. Leila serves as the global advocacy director at The Girl Generation, and is a renowned psychotherapist who supports survivors of sexual violence. She is also an award-winning campaigner committed to advancing the cause of ending female genital mutilation and advocating for gender rights. Born in Somalia, Layla has lived and worked in Europe, the UK, and the Middle East, and joins me now from Kenya. Layla, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So we just listened to Rose's story, and it was a harrowing story. And I'm just curious, from your perspective and your background, what was it that struck you about her story, and especially the response of her family members and her community? I think these stories are extremely common. That's, I think that's the sad part. I'm saying this also, you know, as a survivor myself, I've undergone female genital mutilation at the age of seven, and I recognize female genital mutilation as a form of sexual assault. So I, I think I would love to start with that. And as a therapist who's worked in this space for many, many years, 
the theme that constantly comes up in these stories is not being believed. Uh, families who want to brush it under the carpet. There's a sense people could be blaming you for this. There's a sense of guilt, actually, mm. from my experience, survivors, all they really want is to be believed. Actually, a lot of them don't even talk about getting justice. They just want to be believed by others. Mm. And for so many survivors of sexual assault, it's hard to come forward because they already exist in a society where women are shamed if anyone touches their body in a certain way or they sexually assaulted there's an idea that you must have played a role so you now actually have to prove on why you were assaulted in the first place so sadly this is very common absolutely just having the courage to come forward with your story in the first place and then it being questioned or bearing isolation as a result of it or bearing blame is is just a tragic extension of the violence to begin with. That itself is also another violence. Exactly. When you're not believed, what that causes, it's another form of emotional harm. So it's not just the sexual assault they're now dealing with. Now they're dealing with a whole community, a group of people they trusted, now not believing in that also itself is extremely harmful. And in your work as a psychotherapist, and you've supported countless survivors of sexual violence and its aftermath and this additional violence that they experience with their loved ones and in their communities, why is it so important to listen to survivors? So why is it important that we listen to survivors? One, they live in a society where women are already shamed about their bodies, about their gender, but about being sexual beings. So the idea that you've been assaulted is never taken seriously. So, so you're already now being violated in an environment where you are already shamed as a woman. So it's important when a woman comes forward or a girl comes forward because that is extremely a hard step. So it's important we create a safe space to acknowledge the experience. And people always need this idea that we need to we can ask about proof and if it goes through some sort of court, we can investigate it, obviously. But I think when a survivor comes forward and says, I have been violated, it's extremely important we recognize that violation. And like I said earlier, by not believing or indicating you did not hear this properly or question it, that itself can be extremely harmful. So it's extremely important that we hear women when they say they have been violated. Absolutely. And you mentioned your own experience with female genital mutilation. And I know you've you've been a tireless campaigner for ending the practice, as it is, in fact, another form of sexual abuse. And you've spoken very powerfully about your own experience in the past of being cut just as a child. And I guess my question is, how much does that experience inform your work and your sense of mission? My whole career is unfortunately informed by a violation I've experienced. Actually, my trauma, it's the, I guess, the catalyst for the work that I do and the clinics that I formed, um, specifically for women and girls who've experienced female genital mutilation. But before I even finish answering that question, let me just give you a quick picture of what that is. I think there's a wrong impression or a different yeah. impression of what FGM actually is. A child, it's taken at its own home pinned to a table by people they trust the most, spread their legs apart, and now we touch their genitalia. We haven't cut anything yet. As you can see just from that image, we have violated a child. 
by law, the legal framework clearly states touching someone's genitalia is a sexual assault. With FGM, you now take a blade or a sharp object to that child. You are now dealing with serious sexual assault. So for me, doing this work has been, I guess I get to be in a position where I can create a safe space for the women to be believed. If a woman discloses sexual assault, I believe her. And helping FGM survivors recognize what they experienced was not a cultural traditional practice, but a form of sexual abuse, sexual assault. And all of that stems from my own experience. That's, uh, thank you for really painting the picture of the horror, because, you know, when we hear about female genital mutilation, it's easy to forget that we're often talking about children. And especially mm-hmm. when I see it as an acronym, it's easy to just see it disappear mm-hmm. behind the jargon of the work that we're doing. But-, but it's language, right? Language is so extremely powerful. I think by framing something, just by calling it culture tradition, somehow that now defines how we approach it. So my really, my work has been... Reframing the language is quite critical, especially when we're dealing with FGM. I call it serious sexual assault against children. Actually, in Africa, it's a pandemic. Every 10 seconds, a girl's been mutilated in this continent. Three million are mutilated every year. So that's a pandemic oh we're dealing with. Yeah, it's a pandemic of sexual assault of children. And just as it's important, like you said, to listen to survivors, but just to acknowledge Mm -hmm. the pain so that something that's being framed as a norm, as a tradition, as common practice, that the pain should just be accepted is reconsidered as you've just framed it instead as sexual assault. Exactly. Can you talk more about the extent that the control of women and girls and their narrative and their story and their lives and bodies is a driving force behind many forms of sexual violence? I mean, historically, we, again, live in a society where any part of the world, we have systems that control women physically, emotionally, socially. And we do that by the laws we have in place, policies, So I'm using air quotes here, tradition, (laughs) cultural, religion, the list goes on. Mm -hmm. So the idea of controlling women has led to, and I want to keep saying this pandemic of sexual assault, this is a pandemic we're dealing with because we, we still live in a society that says we own women's bodies. We control women's bodies. I mean, we tell women whether to have a baby or not. We make that decision. The society makes that decision, not the women and girls itself. For me, that's also another form of assault against women. Right. So it's really recognizing, because this is all connected, telling women whether to have an abortion or not is a form of control. Telling women that they need to remain virgins is a form of control. Telling women whether they are covered up or stripped. So we need to really address the system women and girls are actually living under. And especially for me, what's been really critical is looking at existing laws and policies. I always say any organization, whichever country they're based in, I always say, can you actually send me a list of the laws that protect women and girls? And there's hardly any, which is shocking. And the ones that are there are usually embedded within the patriarchal system. Right. So that has to be addressed when we are talking about sexual assault to women. So I'm not surprised women are assaulted to that level. Because society, again, the system allows it for it to happen. And I think it goes back to what we discussed about how important it is for 
survivors to receive the type of psychotherapy and support that practitioners like you provide, but also if we're talking about preventing it from ever happening and ending the pandemic of sexual assault, it's really about going to the systems and the root of the problem, which is this sense of control of women and girls, of devaluing them and and their person. Absolutely. As you know, at Women for Women International, we're strong believers in survivor-centric support in conflict settings. But can you talk a bit more about what we can further do to prevent sexual violence and address some of those root causes? Absolutely. I mean, in terms of prevention, it comes at different levels, right? One, our education system needs to change. Our education is crazy. By the time we leave school, we don't have a clue about healthy relationships, about our bodies and finance. Three key things we need when we go to the real world. So our education system definitely needs to change in prevention, where we need to teach children about not violating very early on. This idea that we don't talk to kids about Mm -hmm. this is ludicrous to me. I mean, if you look at the Dutch system, children I taught about this at the age of five, I think, like it starts at nursery, teaching children to protect their bodies, to teach them how to report when they violate it. So that kind of training and awareness is part of the prevention. But going back to what I said earlier, our laws and policies also need to change. A lot of women don't come forward just based on the way the legal system works. A lot of rape victims, whenever they come into the legal system, they are now treated like the criminals. And also in that process, there isn't an aftercare for the victim, for the survivor. Yeah. There isn't an emotional safety and care during that whole process. I think having that kind of system in place is very hard for women to come forward unless you come from a very privileged background, Mm -hmm. you have the right people around you, even that. And I've seen really people who had all the infrastructure in place but still suffered through that process because they were also being prosecuted in that space. They had to answer why they went to a party in the middle of the night, why they went there without someone. So they're now being questioned because that's what society has done. And I think until that changes, I think we really have to, again, challenge the patriarchal systems that inform, because our laws and policies are informed by patriarchal system, which is heavily influenced by religion, in my opinion. So I think that that has to be addressed. Until that's addressed, because for me, FGM, you know, domestic violence, child marriage. I mean, I hate using that language, by the way. I hate the term child marriage or domestic violence. There's nothing domesticated about violence. There's nothing marriageable about a child. But again, we use even those languages because the system has allowed us to use that language so we can maybe treat it differently. If we say it's child marriage in a Middle Eastern family or in Africa, we're like, that makes it a little bit okay. Do you see why the system has to change Mm. in order for us to prevent this from happening? Can we ever get rid of this violence? I don't know, but we can make sure we have a proper system in place. Well, I mean, I think what you've highlighted as this like holistic approach of changing the system while also providing aftercare to survivors, it also strikes me that the education in some ways is about education for women themselves, but also that this is education that boys and men and and all everyone needs so that the burden of being believed and proving yourself and protecting uh, your body, it doesn't fall just to you, mm-hmm. you know, exactly. and that it's changing society as a whole. And also so that a break in, in the intergenerational tradition of accepting 
this violence as well. So it's just the power of a community that can uphold you versus shame you. Just like we saw in Rosa's story is, I think, absolutely the the end goal, really. And well, as you know, the name of this podcast, it's What Makes Us Stronger. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you in the midst of all of the critical work that you're doing and really often, which can feel discouraging, and just in your personal life, what is it that makes you stronger? I love this question because my daughter just recently turned 21. So we had two days together and we were discussing, we were just having a conversation around, you know, what I've learned as a parent versus what she's learned from our relationship in the last 21 years. And I said to her, actually, what I realized, I go, I, I realize I'm a very strong parent, colleague, friend, daughter, you know, just wife, when I'm most vulnerable. Mm. Because as an activist in this space, as a therapist holding space, I always have to be strong. Mm. And I always find women in general are very strong because they had to, because we were violated so many times. And just society is not very friendly to us, just in general. But what I've learned recently, my biggest strength is actually when I show my vulnerability, when I I can show that I'm sad or depressed or, you know, just disappointed instead of pretending I need to show resilient the bad times I've heard people say oh that woman is so resilient and I'm like have you asked her why she might be resilient because no one just becomes resilient something makes you very resilient (laughs) so being soft and and vulnerable I feel it's what makes me strong I think that actually energizes me now I'm seeing the difference by just allowing myself to be sad or cry you know I now I now see crying as a form of release because it's important that we cry. I mean, why wouldn't we cry when you hear Rose's story? I mean, it'd be unhuman for us not to. And it's just really creating that space. I, I love creating a space for myself to be extremely vulnerable and soft. I'm looking for softness. That makes me very strong, I think. That's such a beautiful and necessary message and, and a good reminder for all of us that the softness is mm-hmm. also what makes us stronger. Yeah. Thank you so much, Layla, for joining us today and for sharing what makes you stronger. It was really great to have you as part of this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was been, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. You can find out more about the kind of stories you've heard today and how you can get involved by following at Women for Women on Instagram or Twitter. And we'd love to hear what you think. So reach out and tell us. See you next time. Written and produced by Zoe Gallagher and Harriet Wells. What Makes Us Stronger is a Fresh Air production. The artwork for this series was designed by Nuno Studios.